Romans chapter 3 is where we are tonight. I feel like we're actually making pretty good progress uh, on Romans, although at the same time, we're on chapter 3, and this is week 7 of our study. So uh, I don't know how long this is going to take, but we're going to begin there in in verse 1 of of Romans chapter 3, and I'm going to read the first eight verses. Lord willing, we'll get through uh, verse 20 tonight, but let's read it together. What advantage then is there in being a Jew, or what value is there in circumcision? Much in every way. First of all, they have been entrusted with the very words of God. What if some did not have faith? Will their lack of faith nullify God's faithfulness? Not at all. Let God be true and every man a liar. As it is written, so that, so that you may be proved right when you speak and prevail when you judge. But if our unrighteousness brings out God's righteousness more clearly... What shall we say, that God is unjust in bringing His wrath on us? I'm using a human argument. Uh, You can see there Paul is even getting exasperated even saying this because he's uh, he's doing this this process of of having, uh, he's anticipating the objection or the question and answering it, and and, and he's just a little exasperated, and so that's why he says, I'm using a human argument here. Verse 6, certainly not. If that were so, how could God judge the world? Someone might argue, if my falsehood enhances God's truthfulness and so increases His glory, why am I still condemned as a sinner? Why not say, as we are being slanderously reported as saying, and some claim that we say, let us do evil that good may result. Their condemnation is deserved. In his commentary on the book of Romans uh, and uh, a theologian named N.T. Wright told about a time when he and his wife were traveling uh, to New Zealand from England. He lives in England, and, and uh, there were some friends of theirs in England that wanted to send some valuable jewelry, a necklace or something like that, to a family member that lived in New Zealand, but they didn't trust the mail. They didn't want to send it that way, and so they asked N.T. Wright and his wife if they would take this necklace this valuable jewelry, and, and deliver it for them. Well, they, they eventually agreed. They were a little hesitant at first because it was so valuable, but they eventually agreed to, de- and to take the jewelry, and they, and it, they made the journey safely, and, and, and it was delivered safe and sound to, to the person on the other end. Now, of course, the thing is, they could have claimed that the jewelry had been lost along the way, and and secretly kept it, and, or maybe they, and they, or they could have sold it for them and kept the money for themselves. But the fact is that they didn't do that because they had been, in, they had been trusted and they were eager to fulfill that trust. And one of the ways people describe that sort of a transaction, transaction is to say that one had been entrusted with something. And the point about being entrusted is that the thing that's been given to you isn't actually for you. It's for the person to whom you're supposed to deliver it. And once you grasp that principle, then this passage, which some find uh, very difficult, it becomes comparatively easy. Paul's Paul's point in verse 2, we're going to get into it in a little more detail in a moment, but in verse 2, his point is that the Jewish people, his own people, had been entrusted by God with his very words. And the Jews were, were truly called to be the, uh, the, the light of the world, to, to hold and trust God's message for his entire creation. They were supposed to deliver that message. They were supposed to fulfill the trust. They were supposed to demonstrate to the world that God was God. However, 
they had failed. They had kept the message all to themselves, imagining that it was simply a uh, charter of privilege for them as a nation. It'd be like a postal carrier uh, regarding his mailbag as a sign that he's a very important person and therefore refusing to deliver the mail. He would say, look, I must be important because I was chosen to deliver the mail. Therefore, I'm above actually delivering the mail. And, and however, the, the point, the, the only point of, of in being a messenger is that you deliver the message as instructed. And, go, and going around giving yourselves airs as the messenger may look impressive for a short while, but then... But when you don't fulfill your commission, it begins to look very odd. And Paul's charge against his fellow Jews, even against himself before he came to Christ, is exactly in line with the words of Israel's ancient prophets that Israel has been a faithless, useless messenger. So the question is, what is God to do in response to that? God's name, according to Isaiah, as quoted in Paul in in chapter 2, verse 24, God's name has been maligned. It has been blasphemed among the nations instead of being praised. Not only have the nations not received the right message, but they have deduced a wrong message, namely that the God of Israel is a bad God to be vilified and ridiculed. Nevertheless, God will remain faithful to his original intention. Not only only is his faithfulness not abolished, By Israel's faithlessness, that's in verses 3 and 4, he will continue with his original plan. What what he needs, and and listen to this, what he needs and what he will provide himself is a faithful Israelite who will at last carry out the commission. For that we have to wait a couple more sections, but what is the rest of this present section about here? Now, at the end of chapter 2, if you'll remember last week, we talked about this, but Paul had clearly stated that true Jewishness is not a matter of heritage, but it's a matter of one's relationship with God. Remember, he said, he, he said uh, that it's not just a, that the, a real Jew is not just somebody who's born as, a, as an Israelite, but it's somebody whose heart is circumcised. He, he talked about that, that that real circumcision, that what got the circumcision God wanted was not circumcision of the flesh, but it was circumcision of the heart. And so once Paul had written the end of chapter 2, he was bound to face the question he asked here at the beginning of chapter 3. And here's the question in essence. He says, if God is creating a new covenant people who are to be called Jew, even though they're not necessarily Jewish, and they're to be referred to as the circumcision, despite the fact that many of them had not been circumcised, then the question that arises, particularly in the Jewish mind, is, then what is the point of being Jewish? Then what's the point of being circumcised? And we might expect the answer to be, none at all. There's no advantage. But Paul answers, yes, there are advantages for those members of God's chosen nation. He says they were, first of all, they were entrusted, entrusted with God's laws. Then they were, they were the race through whom the Messiah came to earth. They're, they're the ones who, 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 to, uh, that God used to bring the Savior to the world. They were the beneficiaries of covenants with God himself. They had lived with his blessing for centuries, for generation upon generation. So there were many benefits to being Jewish. Later in Romans Paul returns to this theme 
in fact, this is almost, a, in some ways, he introduces these, some of these ideas now, and then he, 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 he builds on them much larger uh, and much deeper later on. But in, in chapter 9 uh, of Romans, Paul actually lists, lists uh, several other benefits of being Jewish. He says this, he says, Theirs is the adoption as sons. Theirs the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship, and the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs, par- excuse me, patriarchs, and from them is traced the human ancestry of Christ, who is God over all forever praised. Amen. So there are a lot of privileges, a lot of advantages, Paul says. Nevertheless, here's, here's the point he's trying to make. These privileges are, are, are wonderful advantages, advantages that God gave the Jewish people. But the privileges did not make them better than anybody else. In fact, all those privileges really did was made them more responsible to God to live up to the requirements, to the truth that they had been given. Now, Paul himself was a Jew, and and even though he he became a very dynamic Christian later on, he he never turned his back on his heritage. He never forsook his Jewishness. In fact, he realized that the prophets, the, the law and God's plan all pointed to the fulfillment of, of, Jesus, uh, of, of God's plan in, in, uh, in the fulfillment in Jesus Christ. So he's saying, listen, it's not, I'm not abandoning, abandoning any of these things because all of these things actually point to Jesus. And see, Paul's entire understanding of God, the world, and the gospel is based on on the belief that when God made covenant promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he meant them. And that in Jesus the Messiah, he has kept them. And that by the Holy Spirit, he will keep them fully and finally. Therefore, he could confidently state that being a Jew and being circumcised did have meaning. It did have meaning, but only as part of God's total plan. It wasn't just to say, Israel, you're your favored nation. It's all part of the plan of God. The Jews were entrusted with God's words, preserving them until the coming of Christ, who was the fulfillment of the prophetic uh, scriptures. Let's look at verse 3. He says, what if some did not have faith? Will their lack of faith nullify God's faithlessness? Not at all. Let God be true and every man a liar. As it is written, so that you may be proved right when you speak and prevail when you judge. Now, well, we all know, and we've, Paul has talked about here, it is true that many Jews were not faithful to God or, or they were not faithful to do what they had been, uh, the, faithful with the task to which they had been entrusted. And they, 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 but that didn't, the fact that they were faithless did not change the fact of God's faithfulness. This is what Paul is saying here. You know, many, many Jews rejected the gospel, which is very, very heartbreaking because that means that they failed to understand their own scripture. They failed to understand what, what all that the scripture was about and all that it was pointing to. But however, Israel's unfaithfulness did not determine God's faithfulness. Now listen, I, I'm going to tell you, that is really big news for us. That's huge news for us. Anybody here ever been faithless? Let me, let me see your hand. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay. You know, yeah, because we're human, right? Sometimes we don't have we. Sometimes we just don't have the faith that we need to have. There are times when when we are not faithful. But the good news is that in spite of our faithlessness, God is still faithful. He is still faithful. 
His main point is the fact that, that though Israel has indeed been faithless in God's commission to be his messenger, God, in spite of that, continues to go on being faithful to his promises. God has always been faithful to Israel despite all of the nation's failings, and he's saying that God will continue to be faithful to his covenant with them. And you know what? In today's world, as I already I really mentioned already, God's faithfulness is still far ahead of our obedience. Isn't it? Isn't God's faithfulness, hasn't it been greater than your obedience? I'm just It's okay to interact. Nobody will hear you on the live stream, so you don't have to worry. But uh, in fact, the truth is, when we, try to, when we try to couple God's faithfulness with our obedience and with our works in any way, that becomes a very futile act. Uh, it's totally futile because uh, God's faithfulness is not in any way dependent on the quality of our faith or the quality of our obedience. God's faithful. God is faithful towards us because he is first faithful to himself. He's faithful to who he is. God's faithfulness to himself and to his word is seen, by the way, and you don't think of this very often, it is seen in God's judgment. So when you, when you talk about the judgment of God, that's also a part of the faithfulness of God. So we, we think of faithfulness, we think of good things, right? We think, oh, God is faithful. He he, uh, he carries me through the hard times. He loves me when I'm unlovable. And that's all true. And that's wonderful. And we celebrate the faithfulness of God. But, but understand this, faithful means that he is true to himself, which means as a holy God, he is also true to, the, to judging sin. So when, 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 if, if God is going to be a faithful God, that means that he is going to uh, pass judgment on wickedness. That's part of the faithfulness of God. And, and His judgment, the righteous, impartial judgment of God is as much a part of, the faith, of His faithfulness as, as, uh, uh, as is the redemption of the sinner. And in the strongest terms he could use, Paul wanted to drive home the fact that the, that the combined self-justification of the whole world could not stand up to God's truth. In other words, if, if God... And every person in all the world disagrees. There still would not be any doubt about who's right. If every person, every human on the earth disagrees with what God says is right, when you look at the two, there's no doubt about who is right. The fact that many people are unfaithful does not change the deeper fact of God's faithfulness and God's purpose for Israel and His plan for all people remained unshaken in spite of the unfaithfulness of Israel. Verse 5, But if our unrighteousness brings out God's righteousness more clearly, what shall we say? That God is unjust in bringing His wrath on us? I'm using a human argument. Certainly not. If that were so, how could God judge the world? Someone might argue, if my falsehood enhances God's truthfulness and so increases His glory, why am I still condemned as a sinner? Why not say, as we are being slanderously reported as saying, and some claim, and as some claim that we say, let us do evil, <clears throat> excuse me, that good may result. Their condemnation is deserved. Now, the, the, the idea of God being in the right with humans being in the wrong makes it sound, at least in some ways, to our human ears as though 
God and humans or perhaps God and Israel are simply opposing parties in a lawsuit. So they're in the court and that's the way we, you know, sometimes we might think of this, but this is a wrong way. We'll think we'll, we'll get to it in a moment, but, but uh, it's as if we, we think that there are two opposing parties in a lawsuit and one is saying I'm right and the other is saying no, I'm right. But, but that was the mistake that Job made. That was the mistake Job made. He, he imagined that, that somehow he and God were locked in a legal battle. And all, you read through the book of Job, he says, if I could stand before God, I would declare, I would prove my, my righteousness, I would prove this. He said, if only I could speak to God, if only I, I could stand before God. And then at, toward the end of the book, God finally shows up and he stands before God. And you know what Job can say? Nothing. Nothing. But but before that, he believed that he was in this legal battle with God, which he, Job, ought to win. And and you know what? It was equally the same mistake of Job's comforters. I always kind of chuckle when we call them comforters because if if it was friends like that, you don't need any enemies. But, uh, but, But they imagined the same legal battle, but they insisted, no, God must win. But, but the point of the book of Job is, is to say that both of them are wrong since God is not ultimately a party in a lawsuit with humans or with, or with Israel. God remains sovereign and transcendent over even those issues which we find most perplexing. God is above those things. He has the right to make those decisions. Even difficult things like when we ask ourselves tough questions like why do the righteous suffer? And we, we begin, to, begin to think that somehow God is in the courtroom justifying himself. But no, he is the judge over the courtroom. The problem with seeing God in Israel as opposing parties in a lawsuit is that God, when he judges the world and condemns the wicked, in that moment, he might look as though, as he, as, as, as though he is acting as judge in his own case. So, so you're saying, wait a minute, he's... He's party, a part of the lawsuit and he's the judge. That would not be fair. That's not the way it is. That, and that, and, 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 but the truth is God must be the judge. And this in turn raises another possible objection. All of this leads to some of these questions that Paul is asking. When Israel fails to deliver the message so that God has to find a new way of showing his faithfulness, that merely makes God's truthfulness stand out all the more brightly, doesn't it? This is what he's saying. So the questioner says, so why should God then be angry with Israel for not doing what was required? Indeed, why not simply do what is wrong so that, in, so that God in putting it right can be seen to be all that much greater? This is the, 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 the reasoning. It's faulty logic of Paul's questioner. It flows something like this. He says, when God judges, his righteousness is obvious. It will be obvious to everyone. Therefore, when I sin, I, I provide an opportunity for God's righteousness to be seen clearly. So I'm doing God a favor in providing him an opportunity to see how great he is by my sin. And if I'm doing him a fever, excuse a favor, not a fever, of doing him a favor, then why would I deserve wrath? In other words, they're saying, if God is light, if I become as dark as possible, it makes his light shine that much brighter. That's the argument they're making. And if my sinfulness makes God look so good, why should he punish me? If, if God's faithfulness is not dependent on my faithfulness, then why should I bother being faithful? 
These are the questions that, are, that he's asking. You know, Paul understands something about people. And I've learned this over the years. I think you'll recognize this. Is that people, generally speaking, we as human beings are far more willing to rationalize than repent. Aren't we? We're far more willing to rationalize why we did something or why that person deserved it and, or why it's not really sinful or it's not all that bad. We're a lot, it's a, we're a lot more uh, uh, likely and, and, and willing to rationalize than we are to actually repent over the sin. And, and the question is asked, is God unjust to punish the unrighteous? Well, and that's, and you know, there are people in the world that, that, that come from this, this same angle, the same argument. See, these arguments are not, that, that are people, people are making today, they're not new. But, uh, you know, many believe today that God's wrath contradicts, contradicts His loving nature. They say, oh, my God's a loving God. My God is a God of love. He wouldn't judge people. He wouldn't send them, send them to hell. Well, first of all, it ignores the fact that, that He gave us the choice, so He doesn't send anyone to hell. They choose that. They choose that because he says, here's the way, walk in it. And we say, no, I'm not walking in that way. And then the other path leads to destruction. And then when we, when we get into destruction, then we want to say, God, why did you do this to me? He said, I, 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 put a, I told you which way to go. And, and so that's, that's, you know, that's one of the arguments. God, God, the fact is God is entirely just to set whatever standards he wishes. He's God. He's the creator. He can set whatever standard. And God will judge the earth. But the fact that he is faithful and the fact that he is perfectly just requires him to measure every human being. There, no person can be an exception to God's laws. Because if there's one person who is an exception to God's laws, that would violate God's character and would disqualify him as an impartial judge. I mean, if you were in a court, a court case and the, and the judge decided to give uh, your opponent uh, uh, special uh, uh, privileges and said, I'm going to favor this side, you would walk out of that saying, that judge is not a just judge. You, that's what you would say. And God, is, 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 he would be disqualified to be, to be judge of all of creation if he gave favor to anyone. That means that every person, Paul is making the point, every person is going to face the judgment of God. Every human being, whether they're Jew or Gentile, makes no difference if you had the law or you didn't have the law. He said every person is going to face the judge and it, it will be the right thing to do because otherwise God would be an unjust judge. He says in verse 8, why not say, as we are being slanderously reported as saying, and as some claim that we say, in other words, there are people that are twisting his message, and they're saying, this is what Paul's teaching, which he, he wasn't, but they're, they're reporting these things to make things worse for him. But he, he says, why not say, let us do evil that good may result. It's this whole thing of saying, wait a minute, if my evil puts the glory of God on display when he makes it right, then why don't I just do evil? The, the gospel that, God, that Paul preached was, was being misconstrued because he argued that obeying the law would not bring salvation. So he was trying to, you know, and we know that's very clear. And he says it here. He says, you cannot be saved 
by, by the law. And so the Jews heard that and they, and they began to twist it around saying, he says you should ignore everything that God said about the law in the past. And they're saying, you, they're saying that, he, that Paul was teaching because the law can't save you, you should just forget the law, ignore it, and do whatever you want. Now that's not what he was teaching. But that was what they were saying. They were accusing him of teaching lawlessness. And if, if Jews or Gentile Christians interpreted Paul's words that God is faithful despite, uh, despite people's faithlessness to mean that God's laws need not be followed, then they, they, they could reach an incorrect con- conclusion. And indeed, some were preaching a, a, a gospel of license rather than a gospel of grace. A gospel of grace provides the inner work of the Holy Spirit as a way of life. It's the grace of God that covers us in our sin and and, and helps us understand that the law can't save us, but that we can walk a holy life because of the grace of God. But the gospel of license is 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 the gospel that says, God's grace is so great, live any way you want. Doesn't matter how you live, live it up. Doesn't matter if the Bible says it's wrong, live it up because grace will will cover that. That's a gospel of license. And anyone who preaches a gospel like that is deserving of condemnation, Paul says. But you know what? We need to pay attention about sin. Why do we need to worry about sin? You know, some people think they they don't have to worry about sin because they say, well, it's just, it's God's job to forgive. Or they say, God is so loving, he won't judge us. We already mentioned that. Or, Or they'll say things like, and we've all done this one to a certain degree, well, Sin isn't so bad. You know, maybe we won't say that that way. We'll say, but we'll say, my sin wasn't that bad. That wasn't that bad. You know, it actually teaches some valuable lessons. You know, when I sin, I learn learn some things through that. You know, or, or, or I've heard even people say, well, you know, we need to stay in touch with the culture around us. And so we have to, but the truth is you, you don't have to indulge in the culture around you in order to understand the culture around you. But, you know, it's, it's easy for us to take God's grace for granted. But we have to remember this, that God cannot overlook sin in our lives. Otherwise, he is not a righteous judge. Sinners, no matter how many excuses they make, will have to answer to God for their sin. And the only hope we have, he's going to get to it, is Jesus. Now, uh, the the. We're not going to get there tonight because Paul is really just this, the first two chapters and all the way up through chapter, verse 20 of chapter 3, he's really still just laying the foundation, trying to help it make, it make it very clear to everybody who reads this letter, hey, we are all in trouble. We are, we are all sinners. We are all, uh, we are all facing the judgment of God. And that's why right now it feels, this part of the letter feels very heavy because he's, all ta- he's talking about sin and judgment and these sort of things. But but, but, but we, he's making the point that we're going to have to answer to God. We are going to stand before God. And, and then what we say, how, how are we going to justify ourselves? And the truth is we can't justify, justify ourselves. We have to be justified. But we'll, we'll get into that another week. So Paul now he brings, begins to bring to close the lengthy introduction of the charges against humanity that he began all the way back in chapter 1 and he continually ma- maintains that everyone stands guilty before God 
and he, and, and he exposes the common excuses of people who refuse to admit their sinners. I mean, we hear him today, oh, there is no God, or I just follow my own conscience, or I'm not as bad as other people, or uh, in, in the last part of the second chapter, I'm a church member, I'm a religious person, you know, so God has to, that's got to count for something. But by the end of this section, he again declares that no one will be exempt from God's judgment on sin. Every person must accept that he or she is sinful and liable for God's condemnation. And only then, see, it's only when we understand that. This, this is why understanding this is so important to us. Only when we understand that uh, can, uh, can, we, can we really understand and receive God's wonderful gift of salvation. See, if I don't really believe I'm a sinner... I'm never going to really receive his grace because I'm still going to, if I don't believe I'm a sinner, I'm going to think somehow I, I have the right to be a child of God. I'm going to somehow think that I've earned, earned my way to heaven some way or another. And he makes it very clear in Romans and in, in Ephesians, it's not by works. Lest any man should boast. He said, nobody's going to stand before God and say, God, I thank you for what you did on the cross. But part of the reason I'm here is because I went to Sunday school. Nope. Part of the reason I'm here is because I did good stuff. I did good deeds. I gave away uh, money to poor people. Nope. Nope. There's only been one plea. And that's going to be, I was guilty, but I've been made clean by the blood of Jesus. He, he paid my penalty. He paid my penalty. Look at verse 9. What shall, we, what shall we conclude then? Are we any better? Not at all. We have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under sin. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways in the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. So he says to his Jewish fellows, his Jewish uh, 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 friends, he says, are we any better? Not at all. To the question of whether or not there was any value to being a Jew, Paul said, yes, absolutely, there is value. However, to the question as to whether Jews are better than Gentiles, Paul says, no. We're in the same boat. The reason they're not, that, that, that as Jews, they weren't better than Gentiles, because he says Jews and Gentiles alike are all under sin. Now, Paul has already established that, that both Jews and Gentiles are under sin, so Really, he's making a point to the Jews. There's no point in claiming to be superior to anyone else in the world uh, when we're both under sin's dominion. There's no claim. There's no reason to claim superiority. But, but it's interesting here because he uses that phrase. He says uh, the Jews and Gentiles alike are all under sin. And that Greek phrase that Paul uses, under sin, it means 
in the power of or under the authority of. It's the same, it's the same idea that's used in Matthew 8 9 when the centurion said to Jesus when he, he came and he wanted Jesus to heal uh, uh, for, uh, someone for him. And, and Jesus said, let's go to your house. And he said, no, you don't need to come to my house. You don't need to come. This is what he said. He said, for I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. Here's the same idea. This is what he's talking about. I tell this one go and he goes. I tell that one come and he comes. I say to my servant do this and he does it. He's saying that he has soldiers under his command. This is the whole idea of being under sin. This is the idea that Paul is using. See, the human plight is not that people commit sins. It's not even that, you know, that we have a habit of committing sins. We do, and we are habitual sinners. But the real problem is that we as human beings are helpless prisoners of sin. We're prisoners. Not only are people guilty of sin, but worse than that, we are under its power. People by nature are addicted to sin. How many of you remember, realize, you know, especially if you have children, you remember the, maybe the first time your child told you a lie. You didn't have to teach him to do that, did you? That was something they, they learned, they figured that out, and that's part of who they are, that's part of wired into us, that we are under the power of sin, we're addicted to sin, the, the people are imprisoned by sin, they're unable to free themselves by anything that they can do. Knowing this then, God didn't send us a teacher, to tell, to tell us about the right things. He didn't send us a politician. Thank the Lord for that. We've had plenty of those. But he sent us a liberator. One who has the power to set us free from the sins from which we could not free ourselves. You know, when we really see people all around us, at work, in our neighborhoods, at the store, maybe even other people at church, how many of you, how many of you know... Uh, has it been your experience that there are certain people in this world that get on your nerves? <laughs> don't, don't point. It's okay to raise your hand, but just don't point. You know, elbows in the ribs or anything like that. Uh, but, uh, you, you know, the, the thing is, there are people out there that are, we, we, when we begin to understand and we begin to see this, when we begin to really see people around us uh, as helpless captives of sin, then it changes our perspective of them and it helps us become better motivated to help them find the true liberator who alone can rescue them from their captivity. To begin to understand those people, can I tell you this? I don't remember where I first heard this, but I've heard it for so many years. There's so much truth in it. Hurting people hurt people. Broken people break things. And when we, when we understand that the people around us are broken, they're hurting, they're captive to sin, that it helps us understand that the reason they do these things is because they're under the power of a, of a very ruthless master. And they need a liberator to be able to set them free. He goes to make his point, to prove his point here. He he says, as it is written. And then what he does, he, he dives into a bunch of Old Testament scriptures. He, he connects several different Old Testament passages with, with great skill to show the, the extent of sinful humanity. And 
what we see Paul doing here is what Jewish rabbis customarily did. In verses 10 through 18, he strings together a collection of Old Testament, Old Testament texts, Old Testament. That's, I'm just, that's shorthand for Old Testament text. So from now on, I'll just go Old Testament and you'll know what I'm talking about. But uh, it's a very common method of, of rabbinic teaching uh, to string text together. It was, it was called, it's a Hebrew word that I'm not even going to begin to try to pronounce because, I, because it's really guttural. And so I might, you know, really, might really, uh, might, something might fly out. I don't know what would happen. But, but it literally means stringing pearls. And that's what Paul does. He strings together a series of verses outlining universal indictment for Jew and Gentile alike. This was very common. Rabbis would string together verses that would be otherwise unrelated, but they might have one common theme, and they would string them together all one after another to, show, to make a point. And the first five verses here, verses 10 through 14, show the desperate state of the Gentile world. And these verses that he quotes are widely regarded to refer primarily to those outside the context of the people of Israel. And Paul is declaring from the word, uh, uh, the word of God that the, the, the testimony of Gentile guilt. Or there's, there's no question when referring to the behavior of these Gentiles that their condemnation by God would be completely just. God is right to bring forth His absolute judgment upon such people. However, in order to present the full picture... And to show that it's not just those Gentiles, those pesky Gentiles, but it was also uh, the, the Jews, uh, uh, Paul's people, the Jews, he turns to the behavior of the Israelites. In verses 15 through 17, they're taken from Isaiah 59, verse 7 through 8, which declares the transgression of those within the Israelite community, which brings God's just punishment. So, again, he's making the point. The advantage, there are advantages to, to being a Jew, but he says the advantage of being a Jew does not apply to salvation. He's again saying all have sinned. No one is righteous. Just because you have the law, just because you know the law, just because you're God's chosen people does not make you righteous. He's trying to, uh, uh, to hammer this in. And he says no one can earn right standing with God. And we, we see that, 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 that virtually all aspects of sin are included in, this description, in the description here. Actions, attitudes, speech are all included. And those who do, do such things, which by the way, who are those who do such things? <laughs> all of us. All of us deserve judgment. So let's look at these. In, in Romans chapter 3, verses 10 through 12, this comes from Psalm 14, verses 2 and 3. There is no one righteous, no, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. He says no one seeks God. You know, seeking is a way of expressing what is really important to us. When you lose something, the more important it is, the harder you look. Isn't that right? That's why men will turn a house upside down to find a remote for the television rather than get up and change the channel manually. Because we value, we value the remote. No, but, but seriously, seeking is a sign of value. We seek what is valuable to us. And people under the power of sin do not value God. Therefore, they do not seek God. But the good news is that in our reluctance to seek God, that did not prevent him from seeking us. Thank God for that. He says, all have turned away. 
they have become worthless. And that phrase, become worthless, it, it, it means to render useless. And, and you know, that word is actually, it was, originally it was used to describe milk that had gone sour. So he's saying, listen, because of sin, it has spoiled all of humanity. We're like sour milk, useless, horrible, soured, a useless thing. Then verses 13 and 14, he quotes from Psalm 5, 9, Psalm 10, 7, and Psalm 140, verse 3. He says, their throats are open graves, their tongues practice deceit. That's from 5, 9, Psalm 5, 9. The poison of vipers is on their lips. That's from Psalm 140, verse 3. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. That's from Psalm 10, verse 7. And here Paul is dealing with sins, with sins of the tongue. You know, James tells us about the tongue. He says that the tongue is an evil that no man can control. Anybody here found that your tongue is hard to control? Let me see, Let me see your hand. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We all, we've all been in that place. And, and, uh, but Jesus made it clear that, that the indications of sinfulness come from inside of us. He said in Matthew 15, 11, he said, what goes into a man does not make him unclean, but what comes out of his mouth, that is what makes him unclean. There's another place, I don't, I don't have the scripture slide for this one, but there's another place where, where Jesus says that, the, that out of the overflow of the heart, what does it say? The mouth speaks. So, so, you know, eventually rebellion against God shows, up, uh, shows itself by tainting the way a person speaks and cursing and bitterness. You know, that strikes us as first as off, uh, offensive expressions, but there are also clues about a person's inward condition. And, and you know what? It's not just about curses and bitterness and that sort of thing. When you talk about bitterness, can I tell you, the, the person who's, who complains all the time, that's a, that's a form of bitterness. And it shows that there's something going on in their heart that they're not content with God Himself. Let's read on. Verse 15. He, this is where he quotes from Isaiah 59, verses 7 through 8. He says, Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. And the way of peace they do not know. See, rebellion against God leads to violence against, against others. And there are many of us that are restrained enough not to resort to physical violence, but, but, we, but we will resort to, to uh, verbal abuse. But, you know, even beside that, you know, the shameful milestones of history are marked with bloodstains from the atrocities committed by those who rejected God and freed themselves from His rule. There's always talk of peace, but apart from God, there is no real peace. Then from Psalm 36, 1, he writes in Romans, in verse 18, he says, there is no fear of God before their eyes. You know, to fear the Lord is to recognize God for who he is, holy, almighty, righteous, pure, all-knowing, all-powerful, all-wise. The fear of God is, you know, there are different aspects of the fear of God, and I'm not going to go into a, a, a long teaching about this, but but we, we've lost some of it in our modern culture and our, our Western Christianity. But, and we understand, and you've heard this, but we, that, that the fear of God is a, is a reverential awe. And, and that's true. But, but there are also places where it talks about the fear of God and it, is, it includes terror. And a lot of that depends on your relationship with Him. 
Because when you know him, you have more awe and less terror. But when you don't know him, it ought to be more terror and less awe. But you know, for the Christian, there's also another side of that that I think sometimes we don't think about. Because I think there's also a fear of the Lord in the same sense that I fear my wife, Julie. What I mean by that is, I am not afraid that she's going to hurt me. I'm not afraid that she is going to, uh, you know, raise her fist and punch me in the nose. Now, she might do it in the, in the, in, in the bed while we're, she's pretending to be asleep and then say, oh, I was sleeping. I don't know. I can't judge that. But uh, that used to happen a lot more regularly. She's, a, uh, she's calmed down a lot. I used to be a pretty wild sleeper. But, uh, uh, but, uh, but you know what? I'm not, I'm not afraid of her. I don't live in terror of my wife. Not at all. But there is a fear that I have in the sense that I don't want to disappoint. I don't want to let her down. I don't want to hurt her. I don't want to displease her. Not because I'm afraid she's going to get me, but because I don't want to break her heart. So there is a fear that's born out of love. Does that make sense? And I think there's, there's some of that in our relationship with God, that the more I love him, that there's a fear of God in the sense of saying, I love you so much, God. I don't want to, I don't want to love, let you down. I don't want to do these things. I don't want to break the heart of God. So I think there's some of that as well. But you know what? I really believe that uh, the, biggest, the biggest problem, the number one problem that America faces today, and not just America, but really really worldwide, but particularly your Western culture. And that is, I believe, the greatest problem facing America is that there is no fear of God. I think so much of what we do boils down to that. See, when you, when you don't fear God, then you will do whatever you want to do whenever you want to do it. There, there, there will be no consideration of consequences. If there's no fear of God, when we regard God correctly, then what happens is we we gain a clearer picture of ourselves and we begin to realize that we are sinful, that we are weak, that we are frail, that we are needy. So it happened to Isaiah I mentioned this this past Sunday, Isaiah six, five, woe to me, I cried, I am ruined, I am for I am a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips and my eyes have seen the king, the Lord almighty. You know, when we recognize who God is and we understand who we really are, then what will happen is in that moment, we will fall at his feet in humble respect and repentance. And some people lack this fear of God out of ignorance. Other people lack this fear of God out of willfulness. Some people lack this fear of God through familiarity with God. You know how they say familiarity breeds contempt, that we, we know so much about God that we've forgotten who He really is, and so we lose touch of that. And because we have so much knowledge, we are all puffed up and proud, and we lose our, our sense of, of humble awe that ought to characterize a person's attitude before God. Verse 19, he says, Now we know... That whatever the law says, it says to those who are under law, the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Now, those who, who read those verses that, that Paul quoted in verses 10 through 18, he says are silenced. Now, in Paul's world, 
if you were on trial and you had nothing more to say in your own defense, then what you would do is you would put your hand over your mouth as a sign. Say, I have nothing more to say. And, and sometimes court officials would, would strike the prisoner in the mouth to indicate that their mouths should be stopped. In other words, that they were obviously guilty and they should stop attempting to defend themselves. This is what happened to Jesus in John chapter 18, verse 22. Remember when they hit him? That was the, that was the, the person in, sitting in judgment saying, you need to shut up. You need to stop talking, stop trying to defend yourself because you're obviously guilty. And, and same thing happened to Paul in Acts 23, verse 2. Therefore, when Paul says that every mouth may be silenced, what he is imagining in his mind is, is that all humanity together, both Jew and Gentile, are standing in the courtroom of God, standing before God, guilty as charged, and we are left without any defense because we are obviously guilty. The whole world is accountable to God. All people are obviously guilty and now must face God as their judge. There are no more excuses to be made. There are no more self-defenses to be uttered. No one can stand and give an answer to God, an excuse to God. Everyone is liable for judgment. And in the silence filling the court, with all mouths stopped, the one thought is clear. Guilty as charged. The accountability, that accountability of guilt must be answered, even though every explanation and excuse had failed. But I think one question that remains in many people's minds, especially in today's culture, is why am I accountable to God? Why should I have to answer to God? Well, we're held accountable to God because, A, He is our creator. B, He is the personal source behind the standard, and see, he is the faithful judge. We owe him our existence. He, owe, he owns everything. It all belongs to him. Therefore, we are accountable to him. In fact, it's, I really believe that's why many people refuse to believe. They, they choose to, to embrace the idea of atheism simply because they understand innately within themselves, they understand if I admit there is a God, then I must be accountable to Him. And therefore, many people won't, won't look at the whole idea of the, of the existence of God with, with an open mind and open heart just simply because they know that they'll be accountable if they admit it. But He said, verse 30, or excuse me, verse 20, Therefore, this is the crux of his argument to the Jews. Bringing it, bringing it all home right here. He says, therefore, he says, in light of everything that I've just said, no one will be declared righteous in his sight, in God's sight, by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. With this Flat, all-inclusive statement, Paul closes his opening arguments that describe the state of human lostness. And he's saying, listen, the purpose of the law was not to bring salvation, but to make us aware of sin. He talks, the writer of Hebrews talks about this, and Paul talks about it in other places. The law was not meant to become something that the Jewish nation would boast about. 
But that's what it did. That's how they responded to it. They became boastful and proud. God has chosen us. We have the law of God. Nana, nana, boo, boo. You know? Well, they didn't say that last part because I don't know how to say that in Hebrew. Rather, the law was given to eliminate boasting. The law wasn't given so that they they could boast about it. The law was given to eliminate anyone's boasting and to make all people aware of their sin and their constant need for God's grace. You see, if I understand the law, if I have the law, then I realize I don't live up to that law. I can't measure up to the standard. Therefore, I have no basis upon which to boast. That's what the law did for us. The law shows us where we do wrong. But it doesn't enable us to do right. It gives us no power to make right choices. The law is not meant to transform sinners into righteous people, but to reveal God's righteous standard. And, and when He reveals God's righteous standard in the law for us, we become acutely aware in that moment when we understand what the law says about who He is and what it reveals about who we are, we become acutely aware in that moment, I can never measure up. I can never be good enough. I have no hope of making it to heaven based on what the law teaches me. You know, anyone who imagines that they can stand before God and appeal to the works of the law as a reason for final justification, that is for a favorable verdict at the last judgment, they are barking up the wrong tree. Appealing to the law and standing standing before God and trying to say, but I kept your law. Well, first of all, we know you didn't keep it perfectly. So appealing to the law is like appealing to the police officer who caught you in the act. Appealing to the law is like appealing to the legal expert who wrote the law that you, that you have quite obviously broken. Paul's objective was not to undermine the law here. He wasn't saying the law is useless. He's trying to underline its real purpose. He's saying you have thought The law, you were saved because you knew the law, but he's saying the law was pointing to the fact that you need God's grace because you can't make it based on the law. And until Jesus came, the law provided a strict measurement of God's just and righteous character. You know what? We we do the same thing, by the way, today. We we, we, uh, sometimes, and maybe I hope we're getting better at this sort of thing, but but so, for so many years, we as Christians, at times we were, we've been so legalistic about saying, oh, you have to do this, you have to do that, you can't do this, you can't do that. And, and, and we have our list of do's and don'ts. And, and if you do it, in the, the, the do thing list, and you don't do the don't list, then somehow you're a Christian. And, but you know what? You're not going to, when you stand before God, you're not going to be able to present your list of do's and don'ts and say, I should be let into heaven because look at my list. It's the same thing. It's the same thing. But when Jesus came, up until that point, the law provided a strict measurement of God's just and righteous character. But with the coming of Jesus, then God's mercy was revealed. Now, I, I, I shouldn't say that. I should say demonstrated, not revealed, because God's mercy has always been present. But in Jesus, it becomes evident for us to see. Because in Christ, 
God provided a way for all of the righteous requirements of God to be fulfilled. All of the law that we could never meet, that we could never fulfill, that we could never measure up to, in Jesus, he provides a way for those requirements to be fulfilled. He provides a way for us to be declared in right standing with the law of God. That's a miracle. That's the grace. And that's what he gets into in the next section. We begin to get into what, what uh, Christ has done for us. And I love it. The very next verse, uh, uh, it starts, I believe, with the words, but now. It's the turning point. He's been talking about the sin of all humanity. He said, this is the way it has been since the dawn of creation. This is the way it's been since the beginning of the covenant with Abraham. This is the way it has been in the past for all of humanity. But now, God is going to do, show us something different. We'll get into that next week. But why don't you bow your head together with me and let's pray. Father, we thank you for your, your grace. We thank you, Lord God, that, that you have made a way for us, Lord Jesus, that we, we could never measure up. We can never live up to the law. We know that. We freely admit that. But, and God, we freely admit that we are sinners. But God, we have been saved by the grace of God. And Jesus, you have made a way for all of the righteous requirements of your law to be fulfilled. And we can be declared righteous according to the law. We, we meet those standards because of the grace of God, because of the sacrifice of Christ, because he has paid the price and he has taken our sinfulness upon him and he has given to us his righteousness. And God, we thank you for that. And we are we are beyond grateful, and I pray, Lord, that you would make that more and more real to us. Make us more and more aware of how great your grace is. And we ask all of this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.